Podcast Network. In the 1960s, where rioting was virtually a norm and freedom fighters were asking, who do you turn to when a cop hits you? They weren't thinking about where you turn when an elected official sticks his finger in a voter's chest and shouts, I don't work for you. It's clear we can't count on our elected officials to stand up for what's right. The law, truth, justice. Actually, we do have one ally. He's with you now. He's Dan Newman. Not bragging, but I'm saying it's sad that it takes people like us in the media, the conservative media, to get the facts out there. One would think that our leaders in government would be all over the facts and would look for chase hunger for every television camera, every microphone they could find to let us know here's what's really going on. Well, good morning, everybody. We share that conundrum, don't we? We can't figure out what the truth is, and if we puzzle through and figure it out, how can we share it? I think we're dangerously uh, close to the edge of a, uh, a precipice that will take us back to many, 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 many years ago, many years ago, where we didn't have television. We didn't have radio. We didn't have uh, any way of mass communication whatsoever other than he said, she said. In other words, speaking, talking to, convincing people, convincing others of things that are actually truthful. And truth be known, we might be a whole lot better off if we went back to that era in our time. You know what I mean? Where we could get everything from the horse's mouth. We didn't go through like 20 different people to get to the end of it. I'll never forget the first time in second grade when our teacher was going to try to explain to us how things got changed when they're told by one person to one person, that person then tells it to another person. And by the time it got all the way around the room, it sounded nothing like the original statement that was made between the first two people. (laughs) You think we're living in that scenario today? Everybody's got to pontificate about everything. And there are people that say that's what I do here, that I pontificate. Let me just make something clear. Truth News Network is owned by a company, Truth News Network Limited is the parent company. And Truth News Network Limited has one owner. And you're listening to him. Now, why am I telling you that? I answer to nobody. We don't have stockholders here. We don't have bosses. It stops right here with me. Now, what should that mean to you? I'm not bragging. I'm just telling you. We don't have to feed the monkey we don't have to, to be careful about things that we, we put out in our written stories or that we put out on this show. We have autonomy, and it starts and ends right here. A lot of people say, you don't monetize this. You should be selling subscriptions. You're leaving a whole bunch of money on the table, Dan. That may be true. I don't know how many people would want to even write a check in and uh, pay for this service, but that doesn't matter. That's not what this is about. I don't need income from this. 
We don't. We just need it to keep rolling on and do so without being obligated to other people for financial purposes. I was so distraught when I finally realized what I had thought might be true. I found out it was true regarding conservative media. And the King Kong of conservative media for the last 20 years has been Fox News. Cable News Network, sure, it's not a broadcast network, so its reach has been somewhat limited. But it was the go-to source to get unbiased political narrative that was straight down the middle. In other words, Fox News pretty much gave us for years everything from the left, everything from the right, but they made it be clear that these are the parts of this that are factual. Now you draw your own conclusions. Even now, we find a difficulty to trust what we hear from Fox News. Now, does that mean they're evil or anything like that? No, I'm not saying that at all. I'm just saying we've seen a side of Fox News that made most of us, most of us conservatives, pretty uncomfortable because it's not as it appears for years to have been impartial, factual, truthful. It's as if there's an axe to grind now. That makes true conservatives very, very uncomfortable. I didn't mean to go off on pontification top of the show today. (laughs) I do that from time to time, but typically it's when we get into the meat of each show. This, don't forget, is Tuesday. What happens here on Tuesday? In our second hour, our buddy Steve Baker joins us, and he brings us up to date on the very latest that's happening in D.C. and other places around the world, and it's a big thing going on right now for Steve Baker. Some of it good, some of it bad. We'll get him to talk about that when he joins us at 10 o'clock Central Time. I do know, factually, he's headed back to Washington, D.C. He spends a lot of time in D.C., doesn't he? I haven't even looked to see how far it is from uh, his home in North Carolina to Washington, D.C., but it's a little more than a hop, skip, and a jump. But that's what he's all about. He's also now an official contributor, investigative journalist for the Blaze Network, Glenn Beck and those guys. So... We're honored that he takes time on Tuesday to come by and share his wisdom with us, and he's going to do just that. And I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to get after him. I'm going to get after him to dig down deep and give us some things that maybe he's been holding off on telling us about. When you're an investigative journalist, not only do you have to be careful about what you are digging out, but how and where and when to reveal it. So all that's coming up. We also found out, this probably won't shock you, our current president had about, oh, I don't know, two or three dozen email aliases. I'm exaggerating, of course. But Joe Biden has got some of those. We'll give you the information about them and what's been going on with those and how he has used it. We have the facts. That's a good thing. And that's what we do around here, as you all know. 
We dig, we dive, we get the facts, and then we share them with you. But before we get into that, how about a little Chicago, by the way, one of Steve Baker's favorites.
That's Chicago. Nothing's going to stop us now. I told you Steve Baker likes Chicago. Let me tell you why. His instrument of choice is the trumpet. And just so you'll know, he's one of the best trumpet players around. He hailed originally from this town that I'm in right now, Shreveport, Louisiana. And he played in a band. And he still plays in a band. He's, what, 60... Six, sixty-seven, maybe. He's a few years younger than me, I know that. But he still plays in a band. They travel all over. And I've heard them. They're really, really good. And so we share something else, Steve and I. I'm a musician, too. I'm a keyboard guy. But anyway, Steve will be joining us at the top of our second hour. Now, I told you going into that Chicago song about Joe Biden and his email aliases. The National Archives, they've become a place of infamy, haven't they? They're the ones that have all the goods on everybody. They have all the documents that Joe Biden ever had. Well, wait a minute. Joe Biden wasn't supposed to have any documents. He was never president. (laughs) He was a senator, and now he's a president. So I wonder how he happens to have 1,800 boxes of classified documents that he had stored in four different locations. And, of course, it's just like Mar-a-Lago. He's going to be tried for his wrongdoing in that, isn't he? Nothing's going to happen to Joe. You know that. Why? Well, if you ask him about it, here's what he'd say. Because I'm Joe Biden. He thinks he's above it. Anyway, this mess on these email aliases, Robert Peters, Robin Ware, and J.R.B. Ware. Those three email addresses, aliases, were used to share government information And you got that government information, not personal information, government information, and discuss business with Hunter Biden and associates. That's according to the Southeastern Legal Foundation. They're the ones, by the way, that filed a lawsuit to compel the National Archives to turn over those emails. 5,400 of them. And now we're going to find out what's contained in some of them. All too often, public officials find ways to abuse their power, using it for their personal or political benefit, but that's not Joe Biden. He would never do that. And when they do, many seek to hide it. That's according to the Southeastern Legal Foundation General Counsel, Kimberly Herman. The only way to preserve governmental integrity is for NARA to release Biden's nearly 5,400 emails to this Southeastern Legal Foundation, and they're going to put it all out in the public. The American public deserves to know what's in them. House Oversight Committee Chair, boy, he's in the news a lot lately. That's James Comer, Republican from Kentucky. Back in August, early August, He requested the archives hand over all documents and communications in which then-Vice President Joe Biden used pseudonyms such as Robert Peters, Robin Ware, and J.R.B. Ware. 
Hey, if you say that fast, it sounds kind of cool. J.R. Beware. Joe Biden has stated there was an absolute wall between his family's foreign business schemes and his duties as VP. But evidence shows that access was wide open for his family's influence peddling. This is Comer. In a statement he released, the National Archives must provide these unredacted records to further our investigation into the Biden family's corruption. The Robert Peters alias. Now, that one really raised some concerns among Republicans since 2021 as it's unusual for government officials to use an obscure government network with an alias. I've been suspicious ever since my office uncovered this fact back in 2021, and we have unfortunately got no response from the White House to the four letters that my office has sent about that matter. That's Senator Ron Johnson of Wisconsin. It's incredibly worrisome that Joe Biden continues to evade oversight efforts surrounding his corruption. The Robert L. Peters alias, that one in particular, received an email back in 2016 that was copied to Hunter Biden, and guess what it was about? Old Ukraine. Now, wait a minute. Why would Hunter be copied on an email about Ukraine? That email, which Comer says the committee already saw, it includes an attachment with the VP schedule indicating that he had spoken by phone to then-Ukrainian President Petro Poroshenko. Hillary's home brew ain't got nothing on Robert Peters' government-funded money laundering operation. <laughs> That's former Deputy Director of National Intelligence Cash Patel. Joe Biden used taxpayer dollars while vice president to set up an offshore-style email server but was based in the White House to route all of his emails regarding his and Hunter's business dealings with the Chinese, the Ukrainians, and with others. Robert Peters, alias, has a at PCI.gov domain name. At PCI.gov. PCI represents the executive office of the president and, by the way, is connected to a Department of Defense network. PCI network, it encompasses, listen to this, the Secret Service, the Executive Office of the President, National Security Staff, White House Communications Agency. Now that's according to the White House Communications Agency. The networks meet WHCA's primary alternative contingency emergency communications requirements. Now, that's a little different than Hillary's. You remember Hillary's server she kept at her house? Nobody in Washington knew she had a secret server at her house her four years as Secretary of State. What makes it worse... It was never proven to be classified worthy. It was never tested by any of the government officials that are unilaterally responsible for doing that. And guess who had a 
pseudo-alias email that was communicating almost daily with then-Secretary of State Hillary Clinton on that server. Former President Barack Obama had his very own Gmail address that nobody in the White House knew about. His address, that particular one, hadn't been green-lighted by the communications department. They knew nothing about it. And it gets worse. According to FBI Director James Comey, all of the emails that went to or came from Hillary's email server, every communication was stolen. It was forwarded to a un-American email server overseas. So in other words, our President of the United States and our Secretary of State at the time, anything they discussed through email on Barack's Gmail account, and all of Hillary's accounts were being forwarded to probably Vladimir Putin, probably to Xi Jinping, and whoever else was smart enough to get a link installed on Hillary's server. But just think about this. Through the last seven or eight years, 10 years, 15 years, who has been the evil in Washington, D.C., Republicans, other conservatives, and of course, oh my gosh, the orange man, not even worthy of drawing a breath just because he's evil. When I was getting set for the show today, I happened to look back at a few of the audio sound bites that we've used here in the past. Do you remember when Trey Gowdy was still in Congress? My gosh, I can't tell you how I wish he was still there. Former federal prosecutor, brilliant questioner, just very, very good at asking questions to witnesses and getting answers. Do you remember when all the mess was going on with James Comey and Hillary Clinton? All of that stuff in the ramp up and the aftermath of the 2016 presidential election. Comey was still FBI director. Trump hadn't fired him yet. But I thought you might get a kick out of hearing Trey Gowdy and James Comey. And I want you to listen to the Q&A, but listen specifically to the exact verbiage of Gowdy's questions and former FBI director, James Comey's responses. Uh, Secretary Clinton said she never sent or received any classified information over her private email. Was that true? Our investigation found that there was classified information sent. So it was not true? Right. That's what I said. Okay. Well, I'm I'm looking for a little shorter answer so you and I are not here quite as long. Secretary Clinton said there was nothing marked classified on her emails either sent or received. Was that true? That's not true. There were a small number of portion markings on, I think, three of the documents. Secretary Clinton said, I did not email any classified material to anyone on my email. There is no classified material. Was that true? There was classified material emailed. Secretary Clinton said she used just one device. Was that true? She used multiple devices during the four years uh, of her term as Secretary of State. 
Secretary Clinton said all work-related emails were returned to the State Department. Was that true? No, we found work-related emails, thousands, that were not returned. Secretary Clinton said neither she nor anyone else deleted work-related emails from her personal account. Was that true? That's a harder one to answer. Uh, we found traces of work-related emails uh, in, on devices or in Slack space, whether they were deleted or whether when a server was changed out, something happened to them. There's no doubt that there were work-related emails that were removed electronically from the, the email system. Secretary Clinton said her lawyers read every one of the emails and were overly inclusive. Did her lawyers read the email content individually? No. Well, in the interest of time, and because I have a plane to catch tomorrow afternoon, I'm not going to go through any more of the false statements, but I am going to ask you to put on your old hat. False exculpatory statements, they are used for what? Well, either for a substantive prosecution or for evidence of intent in a criminal prosecution. Exactly. Intent and consciousness of guilt, right? Is that right? Right. Consciousness of guilt and intent. Mm -hmm. uh, in your old job, you would prove intent, as you just referenced, um, by showing the jury evidence of a complex scheme that was designed for the very purpose of concealing the public record. And you would be arguing, in addition to concealment, the destruction that you and I just talked about, or certainly the failure to preserve. You would argue all of that under the heading of content. You would also, intent, you would also be arguing the pervasiveness of the scheme, when it started, when it ended, and the number of emails, whether they were originally classified or upclassified. You, you would argue all of that under, under, under the heading of intent. You would also, probably under common scheme or plan, argue the burn bags of daily calendar entries or the missing daily calendar entries as a common scheme or plan to conceal. Two days ago, uh, Director, you said a reasonable person in her position should have known a private email was no place to send and receive classified information. Uh, you're right, an average person does know not to do that. Uh, this is no average person. This is a former First Lady, a former United States Senator, and a former Secretary of State that the President now contends is the most competent, qualified person to be President since Jefferson. He didn't say that in 08, but he says it now. She affirmatively rejected efforts to give her a state.gov account. She kept these private emails for almost two years and only turned them over to Congress because we found out she had a private email account. So you have a rogue email system set up before she took the oath of office, thousands of what we now know to be classified emails, some of which were classified at the time. One of her more frequent email comrades was, in fact, hacked, and you don't know whether or not she was. And this scheme took place over a long period of time and resulted in the destruction of public records. And yet you say there is insufficient evidence of intent. You say she was extremely careless, but not intentionally so. Uh, you and I both know intent is really difficult to prove. Very rarely do defendants announce, on this date, I intend to break this criminal code section. 
just to put everyone on notice, I am going to break the law on this date. It never happens that way. You have to do it with circumstantial evidence. Or if you're Congress and you realize how difficult it is to prove specific intent, you will formulate a statute that allows for gross negligence. Uh, my time is out, but this is really important. You mentioned there's no precedent for criminal prosecution. My fear is there still isn't. There's nothing to keep a future Secretary of State or President from this exact same email scheme or their staff. And my real fear is this. It's what the Chairman touched upon. This double-track justice system that is rightly or wrongly perceived in this country. That if you are a private in the Army and you email yourself classified information, you will be kicked out. But if you are Hillary Clinton and you seek a promotion to Commander-in-Chief, you will not be. So what I hope you can do today is help the average person, the reasonable person you made reference to, the reasonable person understand why she appears to be treated differently than the rest of us would be. These private emails for almost two years and only turned them over to Congress because we found out she had a private email account. So if they had not discovered they being the House of Representatives, had not in an investigation mysteriously stumbled on the fact that Hillary Clinton had a email server with private email accounts, they would have never known about it. How much more of that is happening? Well, we now know Uncle Joe has it going on right now. What is the status on where emails that or initiated from those fake email addresses, where did they go? And where did emails coming back to those of Uncle Joe, where did they come back from? Here we are, my friends. We're worried about Russia. We're worried about China. We're worried about North Korea. We're worried about Iran. And Joe Biden is emailing Leaders in Ukraine, Poroshenko, the previous president of Ukraine, in the middle of all of the Viktor Shokin debacle that we have played and you have heard Viktor Shokin, he was fired technically by Poroshenko, but actually he was fired by our vice president, Joe Biden, and it was because Shokin was investigating the company in Ukraine, Burisma. We've all heard this story. Hunter Biden was working there. He had a little income coming in there, a side job, $83,333.33 a month for two years. That's a million dollars a year. You do the math. And nothing happened to Hillary Probably, unless something big, 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 big comes up, nothing will happen to Joe. What's the difference? What's the difference between, oh, I don't know, Donald Trump and Hillary Clinton and Joe Biden? Besides the fact that two of the three are ball-faced liars, especially on government things. Besides that, two of them are Democrats. And I don't need to tell you which two are Democrats, do I? 
35 years after the original movie, Fox is bringing you back to where it all began. Nobody puts baby in the corner. This is the real Dirty Dance. Yeah. Eight celebrities compete to become the real baby and Johnny. Look at my Johnny is. Some will rise. Some will fall. All will have the time of their life. The living room slash yoga shanti slash regional office How did you guys do it? slash classroom. And this is the basement slash panic room. Maybe what your family needs is a vacation home slash vacation home. Find yours on the Verbo app. When playing football, you run up to 120 pitches. You work out 650 muscles. You withstand three times your body weight. You treble your adrenaline production. You raise your heartbeat to 180 times per minute. And in the end, you lose up to three liters of sweat for one goal. This game is not a game. Gatorade works with no artificial colors or sweeteners. Locked and loaded with Truth Ammo. Taking aim at the problem, it's Dan Newman. Yeah, I have problems with people that lie all the time. We talk about it pretty regularly here. You know, it's one thing to tell a fib. All lies are lies. Don't get me wrong. There's no such thing as, remember this one, a little white lie? (laughs) If you lie, you lie, period. And some of them are just because they're a little more egregious. We consider them, it's not as bad as telling a big whopper. But if you roll it all in together, there's truth, and then there's lies, and there's no middle. There's nothing in between there. But people in government just somehow seem to, they turn over a leaf in which now they'll accept kind of lies as being okay. And we have some people that every time their lips move, they're lying. Adam Schiff happens to be a pathological liar. Now, I'm not a doctor. I'm not a physician of any kind. I'm not a shrink. How would I know that? A pathological liar is somebody that not only lies, but they have no conviction when they're confronted with something they said was a lie. It's kind of like, oh, well, it's no big deal. It's part of their DNA. And therefore, they say these lies And in many cases, they don't even know they're doing it. Yesterday, Joe Biden, he hit one right on the head. He made a false claim yesterday when he said that he, and this is a quotation, literally convinced former Dixiecrat Senator Strom Thurmond from South Carolina. Joe convinced Strom Thurmond to vote for the Civil Rights Act. Now, Biden made this outlandish claim 
when he was speaking on the 60th anniversary of the founding of the Civil Rights Legal Group, the Lawyers Committee for Civil Rights Under Law. Pause for just a moment, he said. I thought things had changed. I was able to literally, not figuratively, literally talk Strom Thurmond into voting for the Civil Rights Act before he died. And I thought, well, maybe there's real progress. But hate never dies. It just hides. It hides under the rocks, he said. So who's this Strom Thurmond guy? Well, Thurmond switched to the Republican Party after years as a Democrat from the South, a Dixiecrat, they were called. He voted against the Civil Rights Act of 1964 before Joe Biden had even gotten into politics, being that he was just 21 years old at the time. Strom Thurmond also died in 2003, many decades after the passing of civil rights. You can't make this stuff up. This guy is living somewhere on the other side of Jupiter. Oh, my gosh. Strom Thurmond not only voted against the Civil Rights Act in 64, he also holds the record for the longest ever filibuster opposing the Civil Rights Act of 1957. According to Fox News, a White House spokesperson later said the president was instrumental in getting Thurmond's vote for the Voting Rights Act in 1980. So, whatever Joe meant, it represents another serious gaffe in his long string of serious gaffes. For instance, he's often publicly said his son Bo died in Iraq even though he died of brain cancer after having previously served in Iraq. And he was never in combat. He was an attorney in the military. The president made a similar claim in 2022 while giving a speech in Colorado to designate Camp Hale a national monument. He'd been discussing the many sacrifices that soldiers made before citing his son, Bo, as an example. Quote, I say this as a father of a man who won the Bronze Star, the Conspicuous Service Medal, and lost his life in Iraq, Biden said. Following month, the president once again claimed, Iraq was where my son died. In May of this year, he used the backdrop of a conversation with U.S. servicemen to once again falsely claim Bo died in the Iraq War. The president reportedly made his claim during a visit with troops at Marine Corps Air Station Iwakuni in Japan. My son was a major in the U.S. Army. We lost him in Iraq, he reportedly said. According to the New York Post, The traveling press corps were kept far enough away that remarks were inaudible. The White House press office didn't put out an official transcript, almost allowing the error to escape public notice. That's according to the Washington Post. In late September 2022, the president appeared to call out for now-deceased Representative Jackie Wolarski, a Republican from Indiana, when giving a speech at a White House event. Jackie, are you here? Where's Jackie? I didn't think she was going to be here, he said. (laughs) Joe, she was dead. It's not funny. 
It's not. It's humorous that these things happen every day on President Biden's watch. And they illustrate many, many more things that are going on behind the scenes. Listen, I'm 70 years old now. I'm one of those people I used to laugh at. And so I I guess it's okay for me to throw rocks, you know, because I'm one of them. But I can tell you this, I don't wear Depends, but if I ever have to wear Depends, one thing you can book it, my Depends will never stick out underneath the pants that I'm wearing. When I saw that happen, I said, come on, man. Do you not have somebody at least that will straighten out your fake drawers? Oh, my gosh. And this guy is the president of the United States, and he's planning on a repeat four more years. So yesterday, again, the proverbial question is up. Maria Bartiromo had Kevin McCarthy House Speaker on her show yesterday morning, and the obvious question was asked. Will you bring an impeachment inquiry against President Biden this September? If you look at all the information we've been able to gather so far, it is a natural step forward that you would have to go to an impeachment inquiry. And just so your your um, viewers understand what that means, that provides Congress the apex of legal power to get all the information they need. Because remember what's laying out there right now. We have an attorney general that could have lied to the American public. The short answer on that is yes. Um, is it going to be tough? Yeah. Is it going to be a lot of work? Yes. But I think we're prepared to do that, right? With with the leaders that we have and the chairman that we have um, and the speaker that we have, I think we are absolutely ready to do both. And we've been working on this um, since really January to be able to do both. Now, it's just you and me talking here. I've got to share my heart on a couple of things. One sticking point that I have with our members of Congress, especially in the House side, simply because I guess they're, you know, they're 435 on the House side, got 100 on the other side, the Senate. So you can kind of look at and get a better sense more quickly on the House, excuse me, on the Senate side because there are fewer of them over there. But nevertheless, this impeachment thing, it just, the conversation just goes on and on and on, and it wears me out. I don't even like to bring it up, but we have to because they're talking about it every day. And it starts out talking about impeachment. And then we segue into a different thing, which is we got to ramp up before we can impeach. We've got to do an impeachment inquiry. When everybody out there that is drawing a breath today that drew a breath yesterday and was cognizant of reality in life, you either know this president deserves to be impeached or you feel strongly the other way. And there is no middle ground. Now, we went back at the top of the show. I don't know if you were here. We played uh, Trey Gowdy and Jim Comey back when they were going through the Hillary Clinton thing 
and the beginning of the Russia, Russia, Russia thing, even before Donald Trump was president, Comey and all of his deflecting of facts, I want you to think about the trial of Donald Trump, his impeachment trial. Do you remember that? Do you remember all of the stuff that was brought up and thrown against Donald Trump? And everybody knew that dozens of Democrats for many, many years, whenever there was an election at the national level that didn't go their way, they went dog crazy about voter fraud and cheating and all that. You remember all that? And now Donald Trump's not facing an impeachment. He's not in office anymore. But he, he's got about a million five hundred thousand charges against him that he's facing, and it's simply for political purposes. Now, I live on the other side of the street. I live on the side, and I've told you this, if you've been on this show with us for three years, we're in our fourth season now, you know this. I feel strongly when a politician that is not like-minded, in other words, somebody that's not conservative, when they talk, when they pontificate, when they wave their arms around or raise their voices, I don't listen to what they're saying. I start the wheels turning to figure out what exactly do they mean? And what are they trying to hide from us? Now, let me tell you how real it is. Since we're going down memory lane today, and oh, by the way, Steve Baker's going to join us in about a quarter hour, as he always does the top of the second hour on Tuesday. But I'm pretty sure Steve's listening to us now, so he'll hear what you're about to hear before he comes on. And we're going to go back down memory lane a bit. This is impeachment. This is an impeachment trial of the former president of the United States, Donald Trump. I want you to listen to the Democrats. This is play-by-play of what the Democrats think about irregularities in voting and voter fraud. You claim that it's wrong to object to the certification of election results. You, along with your allies in the media, attempted to cancel and censor members of this chamber who voiced concerns and objected to certification. Manager Raskin, you'd been in Congress only three days when you objected in 2017. It's one of the first things you did when you got here. I have an objection because 10 of the 29 electoral votes cast by Florida were cast by electors not lawfully certified. Is the objection in writing and signed not only by the member of the House of Representatives, but also by a senator? It is in writing, Mr. President. Is it signed by a senator? Not as of yet, Mr. President. In that case, the objection cannot be entertained. Mr. President, I object to the certificate from the state of Georgia on the grounds that the electoral votes no, were no not... Debate. There's no debate. I object to the certificate uh, from the state of North Carolina based on violations of the voting there is rights no act debate. and there is no debate by in the, the joint government. session. And I object because people are horrified by the overwhelming evidence Section 18, Title III of the United States Code prohibits debate. Um, I object. I've objected to the counting of the electoral votes of the state of Ohio. I object to the certificate from the state of Alabama. The electors were not lawfully certified. I object. 
object to the 15 votes from the state of North Carolina because of the massive voter suppression in the closing of voting polling booths. There is no debate. There is no debate. There is no debate. And the massive voter suppression that occurs. The gentleman was suspended. I have an objection to the electoral votes. The objection is in writing, and I don't care that it is not. It is not signed by a member of the Senate. I do not wish to debate. I wish to ask, is there one United States senator who will join me in this letter There is no debate. The uh, objection is is signed by a member of the House, but not yet by a member of the Senate. It is over. And when the House managers realized that the president's actual words could not have incited the riot, as you alleged in your article of impeachment, you attempted to pivot. You said that raising the issue of election security and casting doubt on the propriety of our elections was dangerous. One of the House managers, Mr. Cicilline, told you that this is not about the words Mr. Trump used in isolation. Rather, it is about the big lie the claim that the election was stolen. The House managers told you that it's the big lie that incited the riot, and that the big lie was President Trump's claim that the election was not a fair election or that the election was stolen. Claiming an election was stolen, you were told, are words that are insightful to a candidate's followers and cause people to respond violently. Claiming an election was stolen or not legitimate is something that a candidate should never do because he or she knows, or should know, that such a claim and such words can actually incite violent insurrection, you were told. Well, it seems that the House manager's position must be actually a bit narrower than that. The House manager's position really is that when Republican candidates for office claim an election is stolen or that the winner is illegitimate, it constitutes inciting an insurrection, and the candidate should know it. But Democratic Party candidates for public elective office are perfectly entitled to claim the election was stolen or that the winner is illegitimate or to make any other outrageous claim they can. It is their absolute right to do so. And it is their absolute right to do so, irrespective of whether there's any evidence to support the claim. Democratic candidates can claim that an election was stolen because of Russian collusion or without any explanation at all. And that is perfectly okay and is in no way incitement to an insurrection. And somehow, when Democratic candidates publicly decry an election as stolen or illegitimate, it's never a big lie. You've been doing it for years. But can you imagine telling your supporters that the only way you could possibly lose is if an American election was rigged and stolen from you? And ask yourself, whether you've ever seen anyone at any level of government make the same claim about their own election. If Stacey Abrams doesn't win in Georgia, they stole it. It's clear. It's clear. And I would say say that publicly, it's clear. You can run the best campaign. You can even become the nominee. And you can have the election stolen from you. He knows he's an illegitimate president. He knows. He knows that there were a bunch of different reasons why the election turned out the way it did. Votes remain to be counted. There are voices that were waiting to be heard. And I will not concede. Respect, and I respect where you're coming from, and I respect the, the issues that you're raising. You're not answering the question. Do you think it I was... Am, I am. No, do, I, I, would I not it, do it? You're not using the word legitimate. 
there are still legitimate concerns over the integrity of our elections and of ensuring the principle of one person, one vote. I agree with tens of millions of Americans who are very worried that when they cast the ballot on an electronic voting machine, that there is no paper trail to record that vote. But constantly shifting vote tallies in Ohio and malfunctioning electronic machines, which may not have paper receipts, have led to additional loss of confidence by the public. This is their only opportunity to have this debate while the country is listening, and it is appropriate to do so. The last voice you heard, former House Speaker Nancy Pelosi. So what's the commonality in all that you just heard? Well, the first part was people, members, that were standing after elections and disputing the findings, the official findings of those elections. And every one of them you heard, every person that stood to their feet was a Democrat. Dozens of them. And oh, by the way, at the beginning of that, the guy that was pontificating at that particular time and calling them down because there was no member of the Senate that had signed off on their objection, you know who that was? Your current president, Joe Biden. But isn't it wonderful? There is one and only distinction, only one, that can justify anybody from raising an objection to the results of an election. And it doesn't matter what election it is. It could be president, vice president, could be for senator, member of Congress, the House of Representatives, could be a mayor. Oh, by the way, it could be, you know, the governor's race in Georgia, Stacey Abrams. You remember when she ran and lost? Oh, I can't say she lost. I'm a Republican. I can't say she lost. The counting was wrong. So she wasn't awarded the office of governor of Atlanta, the governor of Georgia. The only difference whatsoever in any of this, Democrat or Republican, Democrat or Republican, and if you happen to be a Republican, and now they've changed that, they've widened the gap, anybody from any party, which they know, and you know, and I know what they're talking about, are independents. If you don't vote for whoever the Democrat is that's running for that office, local, state, or national, you're evil, and you're cheating somehow. That's the only way your vote would go that way, because you can't in good conscience, pull a lever, check a box, sign a mail-in ballot. You couldn't dare do that if you're not voting for the Democrat. And so the funnel over this whole debacle, it used to be turned upside down, where the hole, the little hole's up at the top and it just gets expansive as it gets down to the bottom, the base just goes wide and wide and wider. 
But now the funnel's turned right side up. And all the crap is thrown into the top of the funnel. And what comes out at the bottom? Just those two little things. If you vote for anybody other than the Democrat in any race, your vote is evil, you're evil. But if you dare say or question the findings of any election that a Democrat won, we're going to put you behind bars. Do you see something like that happening around us right now? Of course you do. Maybe, maybe Republicans need to go to school on how the Democrats operate and just scream and holler about everything that goes the other side, goes their way. I mean, that's what they're doing to you. Isn't what is good for the goose, good for the gander? Well, used to be. But now that the Democrats are in control, that doesn't even count anymore. Every time you want to give your opinion on anything political, you've got to look to D.C. and look and see how the leadership in the Democrat Party go or feel or where their thinking is on that perspective of whatever the question of the day is. And that's the only way you can legitimately vote or express your opinion or answer that polling operation that's calling you. Call me stupid. Call me an old fogey. Call me whatever you want to call me. But truth lives in a vacuum. Facts live in a vacuum. You can try. Do your best job to change or alter or dumb them down or get people to think they're not what they are. You can put lipstick on a pig, but at the end of the day, when that pig gets that lipstick off its lips, still a pig, still a pig. It's a lot to take in, but when you need a refresher, it's all here. 24-7, 365, every podcast, every blog. TNN, the Truth News Network. Truthnewsnet.org. amazing. He's talking about motorcycle insurance, and people love it. Of course, they love the savings they're going to get with Geico, but it goes beyond that. You deserve to save. (laughs) Heard that before. You deserve to save. I know. I need you to hear me. You deserve to save. I deserve to save. I mean, he has a way of making you feel seen. Bundle car and motorcycle insurance and save at geico.com. Ready to take your Jenga skills to the next level? If you're an all-star at building towers and balancing blocks, then build up the competition in new Jenga Maker. Play in teams to finish first and claim the crown. Jenga and new Jenga Maker. Reach the top of your game, each sold separately. At Simply Safe, your safety is the only thing that matters. We design smarter ways to detect motion for emergency dispatch in seconds. We create HD cameras so you can see what's happening in your home from anywhere. 
all powered by Fast Protect technology, exclusively from Simply Safe for faster police response. Because in here, your safety is the only thing that matters. Advanced home security, 24/7 professional monitoring. There's no safe like Simply Safe. CBS, NBC, ABC, MSNBC, CNN. An alphabet soup of lies, myths, and disinformation. For real nutrition, you need a full plate of truth. TNN, the Truth News Network. Every Tuesday, our representative that spends more time in Washington, D.C. than the rest of us, Steve Baker, joins us live in our second hour. And he is on the road, but he is taking time out of his trip to share with us. Hello, Steve-O. How are you? I'm good. Good morning, Dan. I, in error, told the folks that you were headed back to Washington, D.C. I thought you were, but you're not. You're headed. I told them, too, that you are now an official reporter, and maybe there's a better term for it, you can tell us, but... uh, you're working with Glenn Beck and the Blaze Network. So you're headed there. They're headquartered in Dallas, so you're headed there instead of D.C., right? That's correct. Yeah, I'm uh, actually, I've been driving through the rain this morning uh, and am working my way uh, to my oasis in Nashville. I'm going to spend the night there with my buddy there and then head down to, I'll be in Shreveport tomorrow and then Dallas for several days after that. Well, will you come by and uh, going or coming and share with us on this trip? Uh, absolutely. Yeah. I'll be able to, on the way back, I'll be able to stop in. Okay. We'll do a, we'll do a live in studio appearance for sure. What day will that be? And there, let me tell you the reason I'm asking. And I think, you know, my wife makes, the most amazing cinnamon <laughs> roll. And he usually, he picks the days coming through town when Marianne's doing cinnamon rolls. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I, I will tell you one, as soon as my, my schedule in Dallas is firmed up, I will let Marianne know. So. <laughs> <laughs> Not me. You'll let Marianne know. <laughs> I'm, I'm sending a message directly. <laughs> All right. Well, Steve, uh, you are flying in some respects below the radar screen on some people's radar screens. Is there any update that you can give us on this pending or possible this indictment thing that's been, I know it's been eating your lunch. It's been eating mine, and I'm not involved in it. Do you have any, yeah, any eyes on it? There's there's no update whatsoever. The uh Assistant U.S. Attorney, who has my case, is purposefully not responding to my own attorney's inquiries. And this seems to be a habit of hers. She did this. This is the same U.S. Attorney, Anita Eve, who was involved with that uh, uh, abortion clinic protester out of Philadelphia that several months ago was swatted at his home with somewhere between 25 and uh, and 30 uh, combination of FBI agents and local uh, policing authorities and those and that's in that swatting event you know they they put the red dots on his family and his children the children were crying and but the lead up to that was what was so egregious in that they were aware when I say they the 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 protester who was being accused uh, of you know uh, of un uh, uh, what would we call unfirst 
Amendment activities, which of course they were. And even though someone had attacked his uh, son and he defended his son in the in the protests on the sidewalk, they knew for many, many months that he was being investigated and could be charged. And his own attorney had on numerous occasions had emailed, had called, had reached out to them. This is over like four or five months that he that his attorney had reached out to them and said look if you're going to press charges my my client you know is a peaceful man and he will uh, present himself and he'll come in and turn himself in and uh, we'll do everything appropriately just let us know when and where and we'll take care of it and instead of of taking that um, uh, from his own counsel this particular uh, assistant US attorney authorized this SWAT raid on his house and on his family. And this is the exact same person who has my case. So, uh, like and similarly to that situation, she's not returning calls or emails from my attorney. And so we're just left in the lurch. So in, in, in the meantime, I'm just uh, doing what I do. I'm going to continue working, continue living my life, and continue doing my job and continuing to investigate them. Uh, for the things that we believe that they are doing wrong. And while that takes place, uh, we, we wait. What would be the possible charge that they would make against you or charges? We're, we're absolutely stymied uh, on that in terms of trying to figure it out because, as I've mentioned to your audience before, a grand jury would not be looking at me for misdemeanor charges. Uh, grand juries are only convened for felony uh, uh, charges and to look at and consider that possibility. So <laughs> when we start putting the pieces of the puzzle together, and the first piece obviously is that I was there on January 6th doing the job of a journalist. Uh, the second thing is, is that while doing that job, I committed no acts of violence or property destruction whatsoever. Uh, we know that somewhere between 80 and 100 other journalists also journey, journeyed into the building that day to cover what was going on, just as I did. And then we have to, we have to start trying to figure out if they're going to try and pull some selective prosecution, which they have done against other independent journalists that day. And the only thing we can come up with is that they might try to charge me with this new, it's not new, but it's it's been newly applied to a lot of recent January 6th defendants, and it's an obstruction of official proceeding of felony. And that particular felony charge is one that is being applied uh, to more cases than it was in the previous two years of these, um, these charges because so many people on the left, particularly in the media and uh, obviously uh, the politicians on the left, are complaining that the January 6th defendants are not getting harsh enough penalties. Even the nonviolent people that did nothing more than take a couple of selfies in a restricted area and didn't cause any damage, didn't attack any police, went through open doors, didn't participate in any barricade breaches or anything like that. They just showed up later and saw that the doors were open and followed the crowd in. They're angry that these people are getting off with um, uh, two years probation and maybe a thousand dollar fine. And so they're wanting stiffer penalties. So they've started tacking on this uh, obstruction of, uh, or of an official proceeding charge, which is a felony. 
And uh, that the whole purpose of that is to get those penalties jacked up higher so that these people can serve, serve some prison terms. So at this point, that's the only thing that we can think of. And of course, as we've mentioned before, in, in D.C., the old saying goes that a grand jury can indict a uh, ham sandwich. And so there's, there's any number of other things that they could apply. Now, whether they can get a conviction on those things, that, that remains to be seen. So right now, we just wait. We have no idea. Congressman Mike Johnson was on the show with us last week, and we had a, a little, I can't remember if it was on air or off air, that he and I talked about that parading charge that a bunch of the uh-huh. January 6th people had been charged with. It seems like the Department of Justice changed the penalty that Congress had set for violation of the parading law. It was a misdemeanor, and they just arbitrarily decided they were going to use it and charge those with a felony, and that people are in jail now that have been convicted of that, that obviously are going to get out because they don't have authority. I know the DOJ, everybody thinks they can do whatever they want to do, and maybe that's the case, but you can't change a law that is passed by Congress. So obviously, they got busted for doing that, and now they're going to adjust it a little bit and use it for the... uh, uh, interference with an official proceeding, which, to be honest with you, Steve, this is getting so ridiculous and so transparent to the American people. Everybody I talk to, even Democrats, they tell me when this subject comes up, this is crazy. It is obviously an extension of the old Donald Trump witch hunt because there is no sane reason to spend the resources that are being spent to go after people like you. You were just there doing what you do, and what you do is not an illegal act. It's covering, through media outlets and resources, it's covering the facts of our operations of government. This has got to stop. It's got to stop sometime. And, and we're going to bring we're going to bring light to this, Dan. Uh, one of the things that we're working on through Blaze Media right now is not only the the big story that we keep talking about and have been talking about for weeks and weeks and weeks here, uh, and we're going to be strategizing when I get there on how we're going to roll this out. But one of the things that we are in fact going to bring light to is this selective prosecution and how they're applying it and how they are misapplying it in some cases, uh, how they are. Uh, from judge to judge, from prosecutor to prosecutor, you can have people that have exactly the same nonviolent behavior, and one is being charged with felonies, and another one is only being charged with simple misdemeanors. And it makes no sense from judge that there, there is no standard being applied. It's basically the mood or the political predisposition of the judge themselves or the grand jury or the prosecutor, which is forcing these things in certain cases and not in other ones. And that is one of the things that has to be brought out. And we're going to bring attention to that. That's a, that's a very, very important point. And to your other point, can the DOJ get by with whatever they want to get by with? Well, right now it looks like they can. And, and the only thing we can do is, you know, is shout it from the housetop and to let the American people know that this is what the DOJ is doing. And and if it doesn't stop, they're going to get around to doing it to you too. 
that's why we have to all join our voices together and we have to stand firm against this uh, selective prosecution. And it is a selective prosecution based on political voices. As I brought up to you and your audience many times before, one of the key factors here is not what you did, it's what you said while you were doing it. If you were chanting USA or you sang the national anthem, uh, or you got on your Facebook uh, page and you posted pictures that were celebratory about going to the Capitol that day, you're being hit with more harsh charges, felony charges, and then your sentencing is, is more harsh, specifically as a result of your speech rather than your behavior. In your case and the case of others that are facing similar charges, especially those that have already been adjudicated. You were there for many of those trials in Washington, D.C. Tell our audience, what does it cost? Give us a ballpark. I mean, cold hard dollars and cents. What does it cost somebody to defend themselves in a federal courtroom in Washington, D.C.? I'm talking about lawyer, travel, those kind of things, but not the other stuff, just the cold, hard cost of federal defense. I know for a fact of certain defendants in these cases that just their retainers alone to bring a competent attorney on is as much as a quarter of a million dollars, just for the retainer itself. And then depending upon the length of process, which can be over two years from arrest to trial time, uh, that, that expense uh, escalates from there. So as a result of that, uh, just, you know, incredibly prohibitive number as applies to most Americans, most common people, and most of the, the basic middle class people that were caught up in this trap. Uh, they're, they're having to use public defenders. They have no other. They have no other choice. They, they're they're being assigned public defenders who are, in some cases, have done really good jobs, and in other cases, are are just you know they're just uh, marking time and filing the appropriate paperwork and and uh, seeing those those defendants through to their convictions, and that's all they're doing. But it's it's a it's an incredibly prohibitive expense when you consider, especially that the government has absolutely unlimited resources, and then we're given hundreds of millions of dollars additionally in the last omnibus bill that was passed last fall, last winter, uh, which which gave them the ability and the the bankroll to go out and charge and arrest and convict another thousand plus January 6th um, protesters. So let me ask you another question about that. Just not an exact number, but a ballpark number. How many people, how many Americans that just went there to see what was going on and to be able to say I was there the day that the transition went from Donald Trump to Joe Biden and they didn't go there for any other surreptitious activity. How many people of those ballpark are in jail today, either already tried or awaiting trial? Well, fortunately, most have not gone to jail. Uh, there, there have been well over a thousand uh, char- uh, people have been charged. Uh, there were there were 
a little over a thousand before the new funding came in and their intention is to charge they said with this next batch of funds another thousand to twelve hundred and there there's going to ultimately be somewhere between only three hundred to four hundred people actually charged with violence but we've seen people convicted for multiple and and sentence with multiple years in prison uh 10, 12, 18 years in prison that did no violence whatsoever. In fact, today uh, is the first day of the Proud Boy sentencing hearings. I've been, even while I'm traveling here, I've been trying to follow that from some of the mainstream media guys that are in the uh, press room there at the court, D.C. District Courthouse uh, as, the, as that hearing has started. And they're looking to, for instance, the government is asking for 33 years for, en for Enrique Tario, the leader of the Proud Boys, and he wasn't even in D.C. that day. They're trying to get 33 years. He wasn't even there. Couldn't have uh, 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 caused any violence. But, of course, they, they have convicted him of seditious conspiracy and convicted him of charge of planning this, uh, this event and this riot and planning for his guys to throw themselves into violence against the government and to take over the government and stop the election proceedings and that sort of thing. But um, I don't have an exact number who have actually been sentenced to prison time, but it's going to be, um, you know, by the, by the end of this year, we're going to have somewhere between three and 400 people have actually been sentenced to prison time. If you're John Q. Public and you're listening to the show, and we have a big audience today from all over, we have a big number of people from overseas that are listening in, which is, it happens sporadically, but never like this. People are really getting afraid of the government. So if you're John Q. Public out there and you're just a blue-collar worker, white-collar worker, just living your life, you got two kids, they're growing up, they're in school, you're saving for college and all that kind of stuff. Is there a sense that people like that are now beginning to be afraid, literally scared to death of the federal government because of the power that it has and what they are showing us they're willing to do when one disagrees with what they put out there and say it's factual? And I'm going to give you a specific to reference in your reply. As of yesterday, actually, I read a report that the National Institute of Health, the NIH, has recommended that the President of the United States issue a COVID-19 booster mandate for all 300 million Americans. Now you put all this in context, we're facing some really egregious top-down injustice from the government. This is this is a very important question, Dan, because and I'll I'll just tell you this, I had late yesterday afternoon, I had a discussion with the uh, editor-in-chief at Blaze Media about this very topic and one of the one of the concerns that we have and that we're seeing is how many Americans are becoming afraid to speak out it's there's there's an obvious reaction just as a for instance you can see every single time that that Donald Trump is uh, 
indicted for additional charges, his polling goes up, but there's not a commensurate outrage of people that are rising up against this. And when I say rising up, I'm not talking about violence or something of that, of that nature, but we know without any doubt whatsoever that if an equal and, and opposite situation was happening to the other side of the political uh, aisle today, to the leadership there, those individuals who support them, their grassroots supporters, their voters, uh, their followers would be taking to the streets. They would be marching on state houses. They would be they would be blockading highways. They would be uh, they would be launching protest events in every major city in America against this. And that is not happening from our side. And we know because it's palpable that. They have, in fact, as you have uh, mentioned here, they have frightened the American people on the right about taking their First Amendment privilege and rising up against this abuse by the Department of Justice and by the Biden administration. And they're not going out and they're not doing what we would want them to do in a legal uh, form of First Amendment protest. This is off. Just the, had that discussion last night. Yeah. This is this is off the topic, but I I wish I would like I would love to have. Um, Glenn Beck is a real constitutional First Amendment guy. He's all in. Has been for years. Yeah. I would love yeah. to have him on my show just to discuss that very thing. If you would put a bug in his ear while you're there, if you get to see him at Blaze Network, I would appreciate it. Um, I think more Americans need to understand how critical it is for all of us to begin to stand up and say, no, you're not going to take away any of our rights. They were so important that our forefathers, they wanted to make sure that that government of that day and every future government understands these rights that are outlined in these 10 amendments these are things you have no option to control. They belong solely to the people of the nation then and today. Here we are 240 years later, and our government is trying to boldly, they're not even trying to hide it. They're trying to take away our First Amendment rights, our Second Amendment rights, and just see how much they can scare the American people into just saying, okay, they're going to do it, so we're just going to deal with it instead of pushing back. And it just seems to be getting stronger and stronger and more and more powerful. And like you said, if the people don't get at least vocal about it, who's going to stop it? And they have to get vocal about it or they're not going to stop it. And that's, that's the push pull right there. And that's the, that is the, uh, the cold civil war that we're in right now, Dan, and there's no other way to put it. I don't want it to become a hot civil war. I don't want my children to, uh, live in that world, but we are in a cold civil war right now. And unfortunately the other side has the power. They have the voice. They're laying down the precedent right now through these court cases they're laying down the precedent through these swatting of uh, Catholic uh, uh, abortion clinic protesters. They're, they're throwing down the precedent by uh, the 
literal uh, head of the FBI, Christopher Ray, talking about investigating people that that go to their uh, local school board meetings and challenge what's happening in their local school board districts with regards to uh, you know gen this gender uh, ideology that is being uh, force fed in our schools today. All of these things that they're doing are setting the precedent of fear to use our voices. And then you can apply that straightforward now to what's happening. Uh, well, for instance, what you, you, you may be aware of this is that there is new algorithms that are being initiated by Google through their AI system to suppress your search results. Now, it doesn't mean you can't find what you're looking for, but now they are subtly putting up warning screens that say, you know, that, that thing that you're looking for, it might be in misinformation. You might not want to really, you know, click on that. Because if you click on that, you might end up on somebody's uh, radar screen for being a, uh, a you know, a, 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 a person that is opposed to government mandates of certain types of things. Oh, like COVID. Oh, like vaccines. Oh, like masks. Those kinds of things. And that is beginning to happen as well. So it's it's a subtle thing that's happening in all areas of disagreement we have politically. And the amazing part, Dan, is is that they're painting us as being extremists in all of those regards when, in fact, just three years ago, five years ago, ten years ago, this was just mainstream Americana. But now we're being painted as extremists for wanting to use our voices, for wanting to disagree with the ideologies that are being forced down our throat, for wanting to oppose tyranny of all types and all uh, 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 in any way, shape, or form, and that is what we're up against right now. And and if we if we cave to that, if we be, if we allow that fear to prevent us from using our voices and using what remaining First Amendment privileges we have right now, then we are going to lose them. We have to stay. Hey, listen, in the last few minutes that we have here, I want to switch gears a little bit. We haven't talked about President Biden, any of that kind of stuff. Um, I don't know if you were listening earlier. I, I, uh, I brought to the people's attention what Joe Biden said yesterday he made a false claim that he literally convinced former Dixiecrat Strom Thurmond <laughs> to vote for the Civil yes. Rights Act. Right, right. Well, look, well, look. You know, Uncle Joe has been in government, you know, for about three hundred, three hundred and seventy-eight years, something like that, give or take a, a decade. Yeah. And so, when he says that he personally convinced Strom Thurmond, that means I mean, does that mean that in 1964 he actually was in government then? Uh, I don't think the calendar bears that out. Uh, so it's it's rather it's it's obviously a, a specious uh, uh, statement that he made. But you know, you can't expect first of all anything that Biden says to to resemble anything remotely. Uh, close to the truth to begin with, but you also can't expect Biden in this fifth stage dementia that he's in right now 
to even recall whether he was there or not. He may actually believe he was there in 1964. Well, he either believes he was there or he's lying, and either one of those for any president is a bad deal. Of course, it even gets worse than that. He could have been referring to Strom Thurmond's longest ever filibuster ever opposing the Civil Rights Act of 1957. He could even could go been. back further than that. <laughs> <laughs> that's that's exactly right. You know, and, and of course, the other thing that uh, neither Joe or anybody in this administration or anybody in the mainstream press is going to report on is that, you know, Strom Thurmond himself, having lived a very, very long life, I mean, he was still in the government at 100 years old. Yeah. And he, he, actually, he actually had a come to Jesus on his... Uh, uh, feelings and philosophies about race. And he was the s- strongest voice supporting the nomination of um, Clarence Thomas to the Supreme Court uh, back in the late 80s. And so, I mean, that was Strom Thurmond. He stood up for the nomination of that man. So this was, he had a, he had quite a significant transformation in his life. So back to the president, and I won't keep you a whole lot longer. I know you got to get back on the road and I appreciate you so much pulling over and chatting with us, but about the president, I'm of the mind. Now I've thought for, I guess, months and months, we need to impeach him. We need to get him out of there. And of course, in the wings is probably someone that would be doing a, a much poorer job. And that would be the vice president, Kamala Harris. I'm of the mind. Now let's just try to mitigate the damage going forward and just make a change in electing another president in 2024. Do you think there's any way we could last that long and somehow get enough pushback against all this egregious executive action that he just rolls out? I mean, he doesn't need Congress. He just forgets about it. He just does an executive order or orders somebody to issue a rule and uh, in total disregard to what it's doing to the American people. What are your thoughts? Well, my first thought is, is it really doesn't matter at this moment who's actually sitting in the Oval Office. It doesn't matter if it's Joe Biden or if it's Kamala Harris. They're not running the government. Neither one of them are. We are being run by two things. We, we there, there is a Politburo-like committee of some sort that is calling the shots in what's happening in our government. And then, of course, we have the unelected bureaucratic state and the that the bureaucratic machinery that are making the rules outside of legislation because unfortunately and, and you and I have talked about this before many months ago this thing that happens in all of these giant 2000 page bills where it says as the secretary may deem and so as a result of that type of language that's included in these monstrous bills it opens that you know, there, there's there's what is said in the 2,000 pages is bad enough as it is, but the worst language in there is that it gives the secretaries of those particular departments of government the right to now appoint people and to hire people into government, often with lifetime, it seems like, uh, uh, appointments and jobs who are just making rules as they go, and we find out about them later. And then, of course, we'll have people, you know, we'll have good people on the Hill, whether it's Thomas Massey or somebody else screaming bloody murder and saying, hey, this is not supposed to happen. You know, they're, they're, they're literally passing laws 
outside of the legislature. And that's exactly what's happening. So the danger that we're facing right now is not who's sitting in the Oval Office. It's that bureaucratic state, and it's this this um, uh, mysterious body of people who are actually controlling the agenda. Now, when I say mysterious, I have a feeling that we're, and I, I believe this with all my heart, mind, and soul, is that we're actually in the third Obama administration right now. And if, uh, unless a miracle happens, we're going to be in the fourth one after 2024. Oh my God. Bite your tongue. Don't, don't even go down that road. Steve, it is. I don't want to go down that road. Well, (laughs) you're on the road to Dallas. (laughs) Stay on that one. It's always great to have you here. And I'm excited that you're coming through Shreesville and that you'll be live in the studio. Just let us know when you are, and we'll we'll uh, we'll make sure Marianne knows what day that is. We'll make we will make that happen for sure. All right, buddy. Steve Baker, he's here with us every Tuesday, second hour, and he's traveling today, but he took time to spend it with us. Thank you, buddy. Thanks, Dan. Talk to you soon. Morning Bye-bye. face. You get it when you don't sleep well. This is what happened to Linda. Morning, guys. Good morning. Ah, What is that thing? It's me, Linda. Oh, my God, it talks. Run! No, it's me, Linda, from HR. It looks hungry. Save the children. Save them. Stay back. I've got mace. Ow, that went in my eyes. Quit moving. It's called beauty sleep for a reason. And there's never been a better time to get some. Get 20% off IKEA salt and mattresses. IKEA, love your home. You're driven all night. Everyone has one. The guy that's fun to be around, but he's dangerous to be around. You've got to keep him away from your things, like your tools, your gadgets, and your girlfriend. So before you get your juvenile mate around, get your lips around a Dare Ice Coffee. The real Arabica and Robusta Coffee Kick will tell you what to do. Hire a jumping castle. Hours of fun for kids of all ages. A Dare Ice Coffee Fix will fix it. You need brake pads? We have brake pads. Like dependable brake pads, quieter brake pads, longer life brake pads, and performance brake pads. At AutoZone, we have all the brake pads you need, so you can get the job done right. Get in the zone, AutoZone. Come in for workout gear. Leave feeling empowered. Come in for snack time. Leave more fulfilled. Because when you shop at Target, you leave with what you value most, like healthy foods for your family and brands that lift our communities. At Target, the things that matter are always within reach. What we value most shouldn't cost more. Well, because I'm in Louisiana, I get a lot of calls and texts and emails wondering how, you know, hurricanes that are approaching the United States, how they impact us. Of course, this one, the big one down there, Adalia, which it's been a long time coming. That part of Florida, West Florida, when I say West, I'm not talking about the Redneck Riviera up around uh, Destin, and uh, Tallahassee up that way. I'm talking about down around Tampa and lower than that. They seem to get the big ones. And it seems like that's where Idalia is headed. So my thoughts are, I've got good friends there. I've been in touch with them this morning from Sarasota. 
they are going to ride it out. They've been very successful at doing that. And my suggestion for all of us is just to pray for them because when it comes to big weather, you just never know what's going to happen. And when you're talking about heavily populated areas, which Tampa, St. Pete, and everything down from there, there's a lot of people that live in that part of Florida. And above all, pray for them. Say a prayer for those. It's going to be later on this evening and tonight when it gets bad. So it would be wonderful if it would just die out, but the odds are really, really big that that's not going to happen. So what else do we have going on? You know, this thing about all of the legal issues that have been piled on top of former President Trump. And we're approaching, in fact, we're already in the heat of a uh, presidential campaign. Everybody knows it's going to impact what's going on with Donald Trump. And one would think in a normal circumstance, and we're not in normal circumstances right now. Nobody can credibly say otherwise. The opponent or the other person or persons running a race would stay away from piling on and using the allegations that are included in these charges against Donald Trump. And of course, Joe Biden, he was confronted with it. He said, I'm not going to do it. I'm better than that. I'm going to, I'm going to stay above the fray. I'm not going to take the temptation to use Trump's legal issues. And then we're finding out he's responsible for a bunch of, of Trump's legal issues. It has been revealed that he is in the middle of it and has been. So anyway, Joe's saying he's not going to do it, but saying he's not going to do it and not doing it, two different things. President Biden's campaign chair says they are not going to focus on Donald Trump's legal troubles, but ABC host Martha Raddatz pushed back. Take a look at this. As Trump's motorcade was pulling into the Fulton County Jail, President Biden sent out a fundraising pitch saying, apropos of nothing, I think today's a great day to give to my campaign. Are Trump's legal problems going to be part of your campaign against him? No. Uh, Those emails go out, uh, you know, you get five and six of them a day. So I wouldn't read much into that. Even though it was the day of the Fulton County Jail, okay. Well, the president has said, from the beginning, that uh, he wanted an independent Justice Department, and we have to just that. So we're not going to comment. We're not going to focus on Donald Trump's legal problems. <laughs> well, Joe Concha joining me now. Joe, first of all, I was—I have to give credit to Martha Raddatz. She pushed back twice on that because yeah. it was so clear this, this fundraising thing went out. It even made mention to this being a special day, a special moment, just when— uh, Former President Trump was being booked in in Georgia. I mean, it's clear what he was saying was a bunch of bull, right? That's exactly the word I used, except I added something to that, David. But this is a family show, so we're not going to share what that was. Because I hadn't seen that clip until you just played it. Yeah, it's complete BS. Obviously, it went out the same day that Trump was booked in Fulton County. This is the entire campaign that we're going to hear going into 2024, David, which is Donald Trump is bad. He probably should be in jail. Vote for us. Not anything is going to be mentioned as far as the media is concerned, for the most part. There are exceptions, obviously. But as far as how's the economy doing? Well, 7 in 10 people think that the economy is poor. 18% of people think that they're satisfied with the direction of the the country. Crime is 
spiraling out of control in cities from San Francisco to Chicago to New York, where people are now moving out and moving to red states. They can't run on that. They can't run on the border, which now 7 million people have crossed into this country illegally. They can't run on education because ACT test scores are at a 30-year low. They can't run on foreign policy because the Ukraine war appears to be an endless money drag uh, as far as us giving tens of billions of dollars to the Ukrainians with no real strategy as far as is there an end game here in any shape, way, shape, or form. You just talked about China with KT as far as their position there. So on every major issue that people care about, the Biden campaign can't run on that. Instead, it's going to be look over there at Donald Trump and look at that courthouse. That's basically the campaign. But I'm just wondering, I mean, again, Martha Radich maybe is the exception here. Uh, Radich, yeah. excuse me. But but she did push Radich. back, and it was very encouraging to see that happen twice at, in that in that interview, no? Absolutely. And it should happen more. I should yeah. be seeing Biden officials on Meet the Press, on NBC, for example, being challenged on these things right. and on right. their record, more importantly, yes. or on CBS or on CNN or on MSNBC. So when, when we're talking about this as if it's a great thing, well, it should be the rule, not the exception, David, yeah, right? I understand. On are, both are, sides, right. by well, the way, speaking, Trump and Biden. Speaking of pushback, Vivek Ramaswamy is not afraid to push back against the mainstream media, and he holds his own. Watch this interview with Chuck Todd yesterday on NBC. Okay. First of all, you never talked about the tech stuff in your book. This is a new thing. It Actually, is that's not, false, Chuck. It, it's it, in it, you have not Chuck, talked about this Hunter Biden nation of victims aspect aspect of it. We were looking. Chuck, for I, it. I think you have not. I think you have not read nation. I think you have not read Nation of Victims. Literally, read the book. There was about twenty pages of content devoted yeah. to this. You know, he doesn't hold back. He, he, he faces the issue because a lot of times when Republicans are hit by the media with these gotcha questions, they try to find a way of getting around it. He hits it head on and the interviewer doesn't know exactly where to go. And Chuck Todd certainly didn't there when he actually had substantial pushback against him. That sound you just heard, by the way, is Tim Russert rolling over in his grave because he used to challenge, as we just talked about, both mm -hmm. sides yes, and did. not with questions like that. And Chuck Todd is retiring soon for Meet the Press and it can't come soon enough. But to your point around Vivek Ramaswamy, there's a reason why he is the one with momentum in the polls right now. Obviously not close to Donald Trump, but certainly gaining momentum. He's now at double digits. He very much, if he's not the nominee, and odds are still that he will not be, that I think Donald Trump is giving him a long, hard look as far as being his possible number two, yeah. his running mate, because he's just like Trump in terms of being an outsider, right. never in politics before, that's successful right. in business. And there's even more news that's come out that uh, it kind of explains how President Biden is going to campaign, is campaigning, and doing it, weaponizing a whole lot of things that he is able to weaponize, even though he said he wouldn't do it. Emails that turned up by the Heritage Foundation following a Freedom of Information Act lawsuit establish that on multiple occasions, the Department of Justice intervened on behalf of Delaware U.S. Attorney David Weiss to respond to congressional inquiries related to the Hunter Biden investigation. Now, this raises many more questions about the June 7, 2023 letter that was dispatched to House Judiciary Chair Jim Nort, uh, Jordan under Weiss's signature line in which the Delaware U.S. Attorney claimed he had, quote, ultimate authority, ultimate authority, over charging decisions related to Hunter's case. It also suggests Weiss and the DOJ may have conspired 
to mislead Congress. So did the DOJ's Office of Legislative Affairs respond to Senators Chuck Grassley and Ron Johnson's May 2022 letter seeking information concerning the Hunter investigation? Well, Weiss posed that question to one of his lead assistant U.S. Attorney Shannon Hansen. Not to my knowledge, Hansen said. Followed soon after with a second email noting that Joe Gatta, who was the then Deputy Assistant Attorney General in the Office of Legislative Affairs, was working on a response. And although Grassley and Johnson both had addressed their May 2022 inquiry solely to Weiss, DOJ's Office of Legislative Affairs interceded. They got in the middle of it on Weiss's behalf, responding in a letter dated June 2, 2022, that the DOJ would not respond to the questions that the two senators posed. The next month, Grassley and Johnson dispatched another letter requesting info related to the Hunter investigation, addressing this letter to Weiss, as well as Attorney General Merrick Garland and FBI Director Chris Wray. Just put them all in the bullseye, right? Again, the Office of Legal Counsel intervened, telling Weiss's office in an email reviewed by the Federalists that it would take the lead on drafting a response to Grassley and Johnson's letter. This never-before-seen email establishes the Department of Justice and U.S. Attorney collaborated in responding to congressional inquiries and were among the first batch of documents given to the Heritage Foundation following a court order last week in Heritage's FOIA case against the DOJ. That court order required Justice Department to produce by three days ago all records collected from Weiss and Assistant U.S. Attorney Leslie Wolf that were responsible to the Heritage FOIA lawsuit. Mike Howell is director of the Heritage Foundation's Oversight Project. He initiated the FOIA request, then filed suit against the DOJ after the Biden administration attempted to slow walk, turning over the documents. Howell told the Federalist the emails show that while Garland was claiming Weiss had the independence to bring whatever charges he wanted, Garland was simultaneously running communications from Weiss to Grassley through the political controls of the main DOJ headquarters. It's a slap in the face, Howell said. And there's even more to it. Emails call into question the truth of a series of exchanges between Weiss and Jordan, starting with Weiss's June 7th response to the May 25th, 23 letter that Jordan sent to Garland. And that May letter, Jordan questioned the Attorney General on the removal of the IRS whistleblowers from the Hunter Biden investigation. Even though the House Committee addressed that letter solely to Attorney General Garland, Weiss responded to the inquiry on June 7th in a letter which opened, your May 25th letter to A.G. Garland was forwarded to me with the request that I respond on behalf of the DOJ. So you get this sense, what's going on behind the scenes it's a all-in, all-or-nothing thing with Merrick Garland and his Department of Justice. It's all political. And anybody that ever thought it would be straight up and run just by the legal structure 
as set in the Constitution with House oversight constitutionally. This Department of Justice and Merrick Garland, who really, really wanted to become a Supreme Court justice and was nominated to serve as a justice at the very end of Barack Obama's term as president, his his application or his nomination was never taken up by the Senate before the change of Barack Obama and the replacement by Donald Trump. But he, my friends, Merrick Garland, he is not running his Department of Justice. He gives everything, hands it off to others. Why would he have in these conversations, these letters and responses to members of leadership in these committees in Congress, why would the Department of Justice, the Attorney General, hand the response responsibility of those letters to a Delaware federal attorney? Why would he do that? That's because Merrick Garland's not a leader. And I'm beginning to think the more I hear him say about things, the more I see what he does, I think he doesn't know what to do. I think he can't handle the job, and he's afraid to say, hey, I can't do this. If he had any pride, if he had any loyalty, if he had any red, white, and blue at all, he'd call the president and resign instead of handing it off to these hardcore leftist sycophants who are in the tank for anything and everything anti-conservative. And they will lie through their teeth with impunity. They do not care. Facts don't matter. Truth doesn't matter. Whatever the left narrative of the day is, that's all that matters to them. All these guys, Christopher Ray, FBI director, Merrick Garland, even Weiss, David Weiss, a federal attorney, these people have to go. They are not perpetrating what the Department of Justice and what the Constitution says about Americans. Every American is guaranteed equal justice under the law. Unless, of course, your last name is Trump. A lesson that we all have to learn that just because you're not a Democrat, that means you're too evil to be given equal justice under the law. So let's circle back to the outcome of the um, the witnesses, the IRS whistleblowers that came forward and testified before Congress. And remember, they testified that uh, when Hunter talked to all these people, met with all these people, these foreign people that had uh, given money to the Biden family syndicate, that any time and everything, every time they were talking, they were talking about things that were benign. And they weren't selling. Hunter wasn't selling access to his dad. But they called it Hunter simply selling the illusion of access to his dad. Jonathan Turley, he explained yesterday the biggest problem with that claim that Hunter was simply selling the illusion of access. 
New evidence alleges Hunter's business partner and Burisma board member Devin Archer met with then-Secretary of State John Kerry weeks before the prosecutor Victor Shokin was fired while investigating Burisma back in 2016. Shokin was fired less than a month after Kerry met with Archer at the State Department. And so Jonathan Turley weighed in yesterday. He said, what are people at home supposed to make? Because there's a lot to keep track of, host Sandra Smith asked. The more evidence we get, the louder the call is from Democrats to stop any further investigation. It really doesn't make much sense. We now have a very troubling picture that is composed of financial records with over $20 million that is being transferred through a myriad of accounts that seem overly complex. Seems like the only purpose of those accounts is to hide those transfer, Turley said. You have what I think now is accepted as sort of open influence peddling by Hunter Biden. That narrative has shifted. It's changed. Now you have media admitting that he was selling influence and access, but they insist it's an illusion. Well, how do we know that? You don't know if it's an illusion or not until we get to the bottom of this. And this meeting is just the latest such example. We need to know more about the meeting. But that information is not forthcoming. And that is why Merrick Garland and others are making the case for an impeachment inquiry. They're leaving Congress very little choice, Turley said. Kevin McCarthy said on Sunday an impeachment inquiry into Biden is the natural step forward amidst the new information allegedly implicating the president in his son's foreign business dealings. And the American people are getting tired of this crap just keeping going around in circles. Meanwhile, something we don't talk about a lot, mothers, moms, mothers who quit their jobs during the pandemic. They are today now coming back into the workforce at higher rates under the Biden economy. Now, that's an interesting occurrence. This is according to the Financial Times in a story yesterday. Over the last few months, there have been more moms participating in the workforce than have been there since 1948. That was when the Labor Department began tracking the data. In July, just last month, 75% of moms participated in the workforce. That's according to data analyzed by the outlet, only slightly higher than the 74% participation rate at the start of 2020. Once the pandemic began, that percentage fell to 70.5% by April. It's not just that women are benefiting from a strong labor market. They're also driving the strength of the labor market. That's Rose Qatar, a director of economic analysis at the Center for American Progress. What is incredible, and it's remarkable in terms of that particular prime age group, is that we know that age group tends to have caregiving responsibilities, not just for young children, but also for elderly people. Moms return to the labor force at a quicker rate than women without kids. And my interpretation of that is that moms had to come back to work because of the 
and you know the answer, the economic needs of their families. That's from Misty Hegness, a University of Kansas professor. In today's economy, being a one-earner family is becoming a luxury of the ultra-rich. The Biden White House celebrated women in the workforce in a press release on Mother's Day 2023. Post-pandemic moms have re-engaged with the labor force. With help from the robust recovery and the American Rescue Plan, that came out of Joe's office. The release bemoaned the existence of untapped labor supply among prime-age women. The U.S. economy recorded an increase of 431,000 jobs in March of 2022, two years after pandemic lockdowns first started. The U.S. had recovered 90% of the 22 million jobs lost during the pandemic by that time. And so, it's mom's. And that's not a bad thing. It's a good thing. But the reason they're being forced to go back to work is not a good thing. It's because it's $8,400 per family more expensive to live this year than to live the exact same way we lived a year ago. That's for every American, every American family, and every mom. That means moms are having to go back to work. That's a wrap on the show today. Thank you for being here. It's kind of cool. Steve Baker is going to be joining us again in studio later. We'll keep you posted on that. And until tomorrow, just know this. Look ahead. The best is yet to come. Birds flying high. You know how I feel. Sun in the sky, you know how I feel Breeze drifting on by, you know how I feel It's a new dawn, it's a new day It's a new life for me And I'm feeling Good I'm feeling so good Fish in the sea You know how I feel River running free
Get some new 